Chapter One of Little Eve Edgerton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Eve Edgerton by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Chapter One. "'But you leave like such a fool. Of course you're bored,' drawled the older man, rummaging listlessly through his pockets for the ever-elusive match. "'Well, I like your nerve,' protested the younger man with unmistakable asperity. "'Do you, really?' mocked the older man, still smiling very faintly. For a few minutes, then, both men resumed their cigars, staring blinkishly out all the while from their dark green piazza corner into the dazzling white tennis courts that gleamed like so many slippery pine planks in the afternoon glare and heat the month was august the day typically handsome typically vivid typically caloric it was the younger man who recovered his conversational interest first "'So you think I'm a fool?' he resumed at last, quite abruptly. "'Oh, no, no, not for a minute,' denied the older man. "'Why, my dear sir, I never even implied that you were a fool. "'All I said was that you lived like a fool.' "'Starting to be angry, the younger man laughed instead. "'You're certainly rather an amusing sort of chap,' he acknowledged reluctantly. A gleam of real pride quickened most ingeniously in the older man's pale blue eyes. Why, that's just the whole point of my argument, he beamed. Now, you look interesting, but you aren't. And I don't look interesting, but it seems that I am. You, you've got a nerve, reverted the younger man. Altogether serenely, the older man began to rummage again through all his pockets. "'Thank you for your continuous compliments,' he mused. "'Thank you, I say. Thank you very much. "'Now, for the very first time, sir, it's beginning to dawn on me "'just why you have honoured me with so much of your company "'the past three or four days. "'I truly believe that you like me. "'Eh? But up to last Monday, if I remember correctly,' he added dryly, it was that showy young Philadelphia crowd that was absorbing the larger part of your valuable attention, hmm? wasn't it? What in thunder are you driving at? snapped the younger man. What are you trying to string me about, anyway? What's the harm if I did say that I wished to glory I'd never come to this blasted hotel? Of all the stupid people, of all the stupid places, of all the stupid... Everything. The mountains here are considered quite remarkable by some, suggested the older man blandly. Mountains, snarled the younger man. Mountains? Do you think for a moment that a fellow like me comes to a godforsaken spot like this for the sake of mountains? A trifle noisily, the older man jerked his chair round and, slouching down into shabby gray clothes, with his hands thrust deep into his pockets, his feet shoved out before him, 
sat staring at his companion. Furrowed abruptly from brow to chin, with myriad infinitesimal wrinkles of perplexity, his lean, droll face looked suddenly almost monkeyish in its intentness. "'What does a fellow like you come to a place like this for?' he asked bluntly. "'Why, tennis,' conceded the younger man. "'A little tennis and golf. A little golf and... and... and girls,' asserted the older man with precipitous conviction." Across the younger man's splendidly tailored shoulders, a little flicker of self-consciousness went crinkling. "'Oh, of course,' he grinned. "'Oh, of course I've got a vacationist's usual partiality for pretty girls. But great heavens!' he began all over again. "'Of all the stupid—' "'But you live like such a fool. Of course you're bored,' resumed the older man." "'There you are at it again,' stormed the younger man with tempestuous resentment. "'Why shouldn't I be at it again?' argued the older man mildly. "'Always and forever picking out the showiest people that you can find, "'and always and forever being bored to death with them eventually, "'but never learning anything from it, that's you. "'Now, wouldn't that just naturally suggest to any observing stranger—' that there was something radically idiotic about your method of life? But that Miss Von Eden looked like such a peach, protested the younger man worriedly. That's exactly what I say, groaned the older man. Why, she's the handsomest girl here, insisted the younger man arrogantly. That's exactly what I say, droned the older man. And the best dresser, boasted the younger man stubbornly. "'That's exactly what I say,' groaned the older man. "'Why, just that pink paradise hat alone would have knocked almost any chap silly,' grinned the younger man a bit sheepishly. "'Hm,' mused the older man still droningly. "'Hm. When a chap falls in love with a girl's hat at a summer resort, what he ought to do is to hike back to town on the first train he can catch and go find the milliner who made the hat.' "'Hike back to town?' jibbed the younger man. "'Ha!' he sneered. "'A chap would have to hike back a good deal farther than town these days "'to find a girl that was worth hiking back for.' "'What in thunder's the matter with all the girls?' he queried petulantly. "'They get stupider and stupider every summer.' "'Why, the peachiest debutante you meet the whole season can't hold your interest much.' "'Beyond the stage where you once begin to call her by her first name.' "'Irritably, as he spoke, he reached out for a bright-covered magazine "'from the great pile of books and papers that sprawled on the wicker table close at his elbow. "'Where, in blazes, do the storybook writers find their girls?' he demanded. "'Noisily, with his knuckles, he began to knock through page after page "'of the magazine's big-typed advertisements.' concerning the year's most popular storybook heroines. "'Why, here are no end of storybook girls,' he complained, "'that could keep a fellow guessing till his hair was nine shades of white. "'Look at the corking things they say. "'But what earthly good are any of them to you? "'They're not real. "'Why, there was a little girl in a magazine story last month. "'Why, I could have died for her. "'But confound it, I say, what's the use?' 
they're none of em real nothing but moonshine nothing in the world i tell you but just plain made-up moonshine absolutely improbable slowly the older man drew in his long rambling legs and crossed one knee adroitly over the other improbable your grandmother said the older man if there's one person on the face of this earth who makes me sick it's the ninny who calls a thing improbable because it happens to be outside his own special puny experience of life tempestuously the younger man slammed down his magazine to the floor great heavens man he demanded where in thunder would a fellow like me start out to find a storybook girl a real girl i mean almost anywhere outside yourself murmured the older man blandly eh jerked the younger man that's what i said drawled the older man with unruffled suavity but what's the use he added a trifle more briskly though you searched a thousand years a real girl bah you wouldn't know a real girl if you saw her i tell you i would snapped the younger man i tell you you wouldn't said the older man prove it challenged the younger man it's already proved confided the older man ha i know your type he persisted frankly you're the sort of fellow at a party who just out of sheer fool instinct We'll go trampling down every other man inside just for the sheer fool joy of trying to get the first dance with the most conspicuously showy-looking, most conspicuously artificial-looking girl in the room, who always and invariably bores you to death before the evening is over. And while you and the rest of your kind are battling together year after year for this special privilege of being bored to death, the real girl that you're asking about the marvelous girl the girl with the big beautiful unspoken thoughts in her head the girl with the big brave undone deeds in her heart the girl that stories are made of the girl whom you call improbable is moping off alone in some dark cold corner or sitting forlornly partnerless against the bleak wall of the ballroom or hiding shyly up in the dressing-room, waiting to be discovered. Little Miss Stillwaters, deeper than ten thousand seas, little Miss Gunpowder, milder than the dusk before the moon ignites it, little Miss Sleeping Beauty, waiting for her prince. Oh, yes, I suppose so, conceded the younger man impatiently. But that Miss Von Eaton... Oh, it isn't that I don't know pretty face or hat when I see it, interrupted the older man nonchalantly. It's only that I don't put my trust in him. With a quick gesture, half audacious, half apologetic, he reached forward suddenly and tapped the younger man's coat sleeve. Oh, I knew just as well as you, he affirmed. Oh, I knew just as well as you at my first glance that your gorgeous young Miss Von Eaton was excellingly handsome. But I also knew, not later certainly than my second glance, that she was presumably rather stupid. You can't be interesting, you know, my young friend, unless you do interesting things, and handsome creatures are proverbially lazy. If beauty is excuse enough for being, it sure makes plainness, then, to feel the real necessity for doing. So, speaking of hats, if it's stimulating conversation that you're after, 
If you're looking for something unique, something significant, something really worthwhile, what you want to do, my young friend, is to find a girl with a hat you'd be ashamed to go out with and stay home with her. That's where you'll find the brains, the originality, the vivacity, the sagacity, the real ideas. With his first sign of genuine amusement, the younger man tipped back his head and laughed right up into the green-lined roof of the piazza. Now, just whom would you specially recommend for me, he demanded mirthfully, among all the feminine galaxy of bores and frumps that seem to be congregated at this particular hotel, just whom would you specially recommend for me? The stoop-shouldered school-marmy botany dame with her incessant garden gloves? Or... Or... His whole face brightened suddenly with a rather extraordinary amount of humorous malice. Or how about that duddy-looking little Edgerton girl that I saw you talking with this morning? He asked delightedly. Heaven knows she's colorless enough to suit even you, with her winter before spring, before summer, before last clothes, and her voice so meek you'd have to hold her in your lap to hear it. And her... That duddy-looking little Miss Edgerton? Meek! mused the older man in sincere astonishment. Meek? Why, man alive, she was born in a snow-shack on the Yukon River. She was at Beijing in the Boxer Rebellion. She's roped steers in Oklahoma. She's matched her embroidery silks to all the sunrise tints on the Himalayas. Just what in creation should she seem meek, do you suppose, to a... to a twenty-five-dollar-a-week clerk like yourself? A twenty-five-dollar-a-week clerk like myself? The younger man fairly gasped. Why? Why? I'm the junior partner of the firm of Barton and Barton stockbrokers. Why, we're the biggest... Is that so? Queezed the older man with feigned surprise. Well, 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 I beg your pardon. But now, doesn't it all go to prove just exactly what I said in the beginning? That it doesn't behoove a single one of us to judge too hastily by appearances. As if fairly overwhelmed with embarrassment, he sat staring silently off into space for several seconds. Then, speaking of this Miss Edgerton, he resumed genially, have you ever exactly sought her out, as it were, and actually tried to get acquainted with her? No, said Barton shortly. Why, the girl must be thirty years old. So, moosed the older man, just about your age? I'm thirty-two, growled the younger man. I'm sixty-two, thank God, acknowledged the older man. And your gorgeous Miss Von Eaton, who bores you so all of a sudden is about twenty prompted the younger man poor senile babe ruminated the older man soberly eh gasped the younger man edging forward in his chair eh senile twenty sure grinned the older man twenty is nothing but the sear and yellow leaf of infantile caprice Thirty is the jocund youth of character. On land or sea, the Lord Almighty never made anything as radiantly, divinely young as thirty. Oh, but thirty's the darling age in a woman, he added with sudden exultant positiveness. Thirty's the birth of individuality. Thirty's the... 
twenty has got quite enough individuality for me, thank you, asserted Barton with some curtness. But it hasn't, cried the older man hotly. You've just confessed that it hasn't. In an amazing impulse of protest, he reached out and shook his freckled fist right under the younger man's nose. Twenty, I tell you, hasn't got any individuality at all, he persisted vehemently. Twenty isn't anything at all except the threadbare cloak of her father's idiosyncrasies, lined with her mother's made-over tact, trimmed with her great-aunt somebody's short-lipped smile, shrouding a brand-new frame of God-knows-what. Eh? What? questioned the younger man uneasily. When a girl is twenty, I tell you, persisted the older man, there's not one marrying man among us, heaven help us, who can swear whether her charm is love's own permanent food or just nature's temporary bait. At twenty, I tell you, there's not one man among us who can prove whether vivacity is temperament or just plain kiddishness, whether sweetness is real disposition or just coquetry, whether tenderness is personal discrimination or just sex, whether dumbness is stupidity or just brain-hoarding its immature treasure, whether indeed coldness is prudery or just conscious passion banking its fires. The dear daredevil sweetheart whom you worship at eighteen will evolve, likelier than not, into a mighty sour prig at forty. And the dove-gray lass who led you to church with her prayer-book ribbons twice every Sunday will very probably decide to go on to the vaudeville stage. When her children are just in high school, when her children are just in the high school, and the dull-eyed wallflower whom you dodged at all your college dances will turn out ten chances to one the only really wonderful woman you know. But at thirty, oh ye gods, Barton, if a girl interests you at thirty, you'll be utterly mad about her when she's forty, fifty, sixty. If she's merry at thirty, if she's ardent, if she's tender, it's her own established merriment. It's her own irreducible ardor. It's her. Why, man alive? Why? Why? Oh, for heaven's sake, gasped Barton. Whoa, there, go slow. How in creation do you expect anybody to follow you? Follow me? Follow me? Mused the older man perplexedly. Staring very hard at Barton, he took the opportunity to swallow rather loudly once or twice. Now, speaking of Miss Edgerton, he resumed persistently. Now, speaking of this Miss Edgerton, I don't presume for an instant that you're looking for a wife on this trip, but are merely hankering a bit now and then for something rather specially diverting in the line of feminine companionship? Well, what of it? conceded the younger man. This of it! argued the older man. If you are really craving the interesting, why don't you go out and rummage around for it? Rummage around was what I said. Yes. The real hundred cent to the dollar treasures of life, you know, aren't apt to be found labeled as such and lying around very loose on the smugly paved general highway. And astonishingly good looks and astonishingly good clothes are pretty nearly always equivalent to a sign saying, I've already been discovered, thank you. 
But the really big sport of existence, young man, is to strike out somewhere and discover things for yourself. Is it? scoffed Barton. It is, asserted the older man. The woman, I tell you, who fathoms heroism in the fellow that everyone else thought was a knave. She's got something to brag about. The fellow who's shrewd enough to spy unutterable loveliness in the woman that no man yet has ever even remotely suspected of being lovable at all. God! It's like being Adam with a whole world virgin. Oh, that may be all right in theory, acknowledged the younger man with some reluctance, but... Now, speaking of Miss Edgerton, resumed the older man monotonously. Oh, hang Miss Edgerton, snapped the younger man. I wouldn't be seen talking to her. She hasn't any looks. She hasn't any style. She hasn't any... anything. Of all the hopelessly plain girls, of all the... Now see here, my young friend, begged the older man blandly. The fellow who goes about the world judging women by the sparkle of their eyes, or the pink of the cheeks, or the sheen of their hair, runs a mighty big risk of being rated as just one of two things a sensualist or a fool. Are you trying to insult me? demanded the younger man furiously. Freakishly, the older man twisted his thin-lipped mouth and one glowering eyebrow into a surprisingly sudden and irresistible smile. Why, no, he drawled. Under all existing circumstances, I should think I was complimenting you pretty considerably by rating you only as a fool. Eh? jumped Barton again. Hmm, mused the older man thoughtfully. Now, believe me, Barton, once and for all, there's no such thing as a hopelessly plain woman. Every woman, I tell you, is beautiful concerning the thing that she's most interested in. And a man's an everlasting dullard who can't ferret out what that interest is and summon its illuminating miracle into an otherwise indifferent face. Is that so? sniffed Barton. Lazily, the older man struggled to his feet and stretched his arms till his bones began to crack. Bah! What's beauty, anyway? he complained, except as a question of where nature has concentrated her supreme forces, in outgrowing energy, which is beauty, or ingrowing energy, which is brains. Now, I like a little good looks as well as anybody, he confided, still yawning. But when I see a woman living altogether on the outside of her face, I don't reckon too positively on there being anything very exciting going on inside that face. So, by the same token, when I see a woman who isn't squandering any centric fires at all on the contour of her nose, arch of her eyebrows, or the flush tints of her cheeks, it surely does pique my curiosity to know just what wonderful consuming energy she is busy about. A face isn't meant to be a living room, anyway, Barton, but just a piazza where the seething, preoccupied soul can dash out now and then to bask in the breeze and refreshment of sympathy and appreciation. Surely, then, it's no particular personal glory to you that your friend Miss Von Eden's energy cavorts perpetually in the gold of her hair or the blue of her eyes, because, rain or shine, congeniality or non-congeniality, her energy hasn't any other place to go. But I tell you it means some compliment to a man, when in a bleak, dour, work-worn personality like the old botany dames, for instance, he finds himself able to lure out into occasional facial ecstasy 
the amazing vitality which has been slaving for science alone these past fifty years. Mushrooms are what the old botany dame is interested in, Barton. Really, Barton, I think you'd be surprised to see how extraordinarily beautiful the old botany dame can be about mushrooms. Gleam of the first faint streak of dawn, freshness of the wildest woodland dell, verve of the long day's strenuous effort, flush of sunset and triumph, zeal of the student's evening lamp, puckering daredevil smile of reckless experiment. Say, are you a preacher? mocked the younger man sarcastically. No more than any old man, conceded the older man with unruffled good nature. Old man, repeated Barton skeptically. In honest if reluctant admiration for an instant, he sat apprising his companion's extraordinary litheness and agility. Ha! he laughed. It would take a good deal older head than yours to discover what that Miss Edgerton's beauty is. Or a good deal younger one, perhaps, suggested that older man judicially. But, but speaking of Miss Edgerton, he began all over again. Oh, drat, Miss Edgerton, snarled the younger man viciously. You've got Miss Edgerton on the brain. Miss Edgerton this, Miss Edgerton that, Miss Edgerton. Who in blazes is Miss Edgerton anyway? Miss Edgerton? Miss Edgerton? mused the older man thoughtfully. Who is she? Miss Edgerton. Why, no one special, except just my daughter. Like a fly plunged all unwittingly upon a sheet of sticky paper, the younger man's hands and feet seemed to shoot out suddenly in every direction. Good heavens! he gasped. Your daughter! he mumbled. Your daughter! Every other word or phrase in the English language seemed to be stricken suddenly from his lips. Your, your daughter, he began all over again. Why, I, I didn't know your name was Edgerton, he managed finally to articulate. An expression of ineffable triumph, and of triumph only, flickered in the older man's face. Why, that's just what I've been saying, he reiterated amiably. You don't know anything. Fatuously, the younger man rose to his feet, still struggling for speech, any old speech, a sentence, a word, a cuff, anything, in fact, that would make a noise. Well, if little Miss Edgerton is little Miss Edgerton, he babbled idiotically. Who in creation are you? Who am I? stammered the older man perplexedly. As if the question really worried him, he sagged back a trifle against the sustaining wall of the house and stood with his hands thrust deep in his pockets once more. Who am I? he repeated blandly. Again one eyebrow lifted. Again one side of his thin-lipped mouth twitched over so slightly to the right. Why, I'm just a man, Mr. Barton, he grinned very faintly, who travels all over the world for the sake of whatever amusement he can get out of it. And some afternoons, of course, I get a good deal more amusement out of it than I do others, eh? Furiously, the red blood mounted into the young man's cheeks. Oh, I say, Edgerton, he pleaded. Mirthlessly, wretchedly, a grin began to spread over his face. 
Oh, I say, he faltered. I am a fool. The older man threw back his head and started to laugh. At the first cackling syllable of the laugh, with appalling fatefulness, Eve Edgerton herself loomed suddenly on the scene, in her old slouch hat, her gray flannel shirt, her weather-beaten khaki Norfolk and riding breeches, looking for all the world like an extraordinarily slim, extraordinarily shabby little boy starting out to play. Up from the top of one riding boot the butt of a revolver protruded slightly, with her heavy black eyelashes shadowing somberly down across her olive-tinted cheeks. She passed Barton as if she did not even see him, and went directly to her father. "'I am writing,' she murmured almost inaudibly. "'In this heat?' groaned her father. "'In this heat?' echoed Eve Edgerton. "'There will surely be a thunderstorm,' protested her father. "'There will surely be a thunderstorm,' acquiesced Eve Edgerton." Without further parleying, she turned and strolled off again. Just for an instant, the older man's glance followed her. Just for an instant, with quizzically twisted eyebrows, his glance flashed back sardonically to Barton's suffering face. Then very leisurely, he began to laugh again. But right in the middle of the laugh, as if something infinitely funnier than a joke had smitten him suddenly, he stopped short with one eyebrow stranded halfway up to his forehead. "'Eve!' he called sharply. "'Eve! Come back here a minute!' Very laggingly from around the piazza corner the girl reappeared. "'Eve!' said her father quite abruptly. "'This is Mr. Barton. Mr. Barton, this is my daughter.' Listlessly the girl came forward and proffered her hand to the younger man. "'It was a very little hand.' More than that, it was an exceedingly cold little hand. How do you do, sir? She murmured almost inaudibly. With an expression of ineffable joy, the older man reached out and tapped his daughter on the shoulder. It has just transpired, my dear Eve, he beamed, that you can do this young man here an, an inestimable service. Tell him something. Teach him something, I mean, that he very specially needs to know. As one fairly teeming with benevolence, he stood there smiling blandly into Barton's astonished face. Next to the pleasure of bringing together two people who like each other, he persisted, I know of nothing more poignantly diverting than the bringing together of people who, who, mockingly across his daughter's unconscious head, Malevolently, through his mask of utter guileness and peace, he challenged Barton's staring helplessness. So, taking all in all, he drawled still beamingly, there's nothing in the world at this particular moment, Mr. Barton, that could amuse me more than to have you join my daughter in her ride this afternoon. Ride with me, gasped little Eve Edgerton. This afternoon, floundered Barton. Oh, why, yes, of course. I'd be delighted. I'd be, be, only, only I'm afraid that. 
Deprecatingly, with uplifted hand, the older man refuted every protest. No, indeed, Mr. Barton, he insisted. Oh, no, no, indeed, I assure you, it won't inconvenience my daughter in the slightest. My daughter is very obliging. My daughter, indeed, if I may say so, in all modesty, my daughter, indeed, is always a good deal of a philanthropist. Then, very grandiloquently, like a man in an old-fashioned picture, he began to back away from them, bowing low all the time. Very, very low, first to Barton, then to his daughter, then to Barton again. "'I wish you both a very good afternoon,' he said. "'Really, I see no reason why either of you should expect a single dull moment.' Before the sickly grin on Barton's face, his own smile deepened into actual unctuousness. But before the sudden woodeny set of his daughter's placid mouth, his unctuousness twisted just a little bit wryly on his lips. "'After all, my dear young people,' he asserted hurriedly, "'there's just one thing in the world, you know, that makes two people congenial, and that is that they both shall have arrived at exactly the same conclusion, by two totally different routes.' It's got to be exactly the same conclusion, else there isn't any sympathy in it. But it's got to be by two totally different routes, you understand, else there isn't any talky-talk to it. Laboriously, one eyebrow began to jerk its way up to his forehead, and with a purely mechanical instinct he reached up drawly and pulled it down again. So, as the initial test of your mutual congeniality this afternoon, he resumed, I would therefore respectfully suggest as a special topic of conversation the consummate cheek of yours truly, Paul Ramoth Edgerton. Starting to bow once more, he backed instead into the screen of the office window. Without even an expletive, he turned, pushed in the screen, clambered adroitly through the aperture, and disappeared almost instantly from sight. Very faintly, from some far-up stairs region, the thin, faint single syllable of a laugh came floating down to the piazza corner. Then, just as precipitous as a man steps into any other hole, Barton stepped into the conversational topic that had just been so aptly provided for him. Is your father something of a... "'Of a practical joker, Miss Edgerton,' he demanded with the slightest possible tinge of shrillness. For the first time in Barton's knowledge of little Eve Edgerton, she lifted her eyes to him. Great hazel eyes. Great, bored, dreary, hazel eyes set broadly in a too narrow olive face. "'My father is generally conceded to be something of a joker, I believe,' she said dully but it would never have occurred to me to call him a particularly practical one. I don't like him. She added, without a flicker of expression, I don't either, snapped Barton. A trifle uneasily, little Eve Edgerton went on. Why, once when I was a tiny child, she droned. I don't know anything about when you were a tiny child, affirmed Barton with some vehemence. But just this afternoon, in striking contrast to the cool placidity of her face, one of Eve Edgerton's boot toes began to tap, tap, tap against the piazza floor. When she lifted her eyes again to Barton, their sleepy sullenness 
was shot through suddenly with an unmistakable flash of temper. "'Oh, for heaven's sake, Mr. Barton!' she cried out. "'If you insist upon riding with me, couldn't you please hurry? The afternoons are so short.' "'If I insist upon riding with you,' gasped Barton. Disconcertingly from an upper window, the older man's face beamed suddenly down upon him. "'Oh, don't mind anything she says,' drawled the older man. "'It's just her cunning, meek little ways.' Precipitately, Barton bolted for his room. Once safely ensconced behind his closed door, a dozen different decisions, a dozen different indecisions, rioted tempestuously through his mind. To go was just as awkward as not to go. Not to go was just as awkward as to go. Over and over and over one silly alternative chased the other through his addled senses. Then, just as precipitately as he had bolted to his room, he began suddenly to hurl himself into his riding clothes, yanking out a bureau drawer here, slamming back a closet door there, rummaging through a box, tipping over a trunk, yet in all his fuming haste, his raging irritability, showing the same fastidious choice of shirt, tie, collar, that characterized his every public appearance. Immaculate at last as a tailor's equestrian advertisement, he came striding down again into the hotel office, only to plunge most inopportunely into Miss Von Eaton's languorous presence. "'Why, Jim!' gasped Miss Von Eaton. Exquisitely white and cool and fluffy and dainty, she glanced up perplexedly at him from her lazy, deep-seated chair. "'Why, Jim!' she repeated just a little bit edgily. "'Riding! Riding! Well, of all things, you who wouldn't even play bridge with us this afternoon on account of the heat. Well, who in the world? Who can it be that has caught us all out?' Teasingly, she jumped up and walked to the door with him, and stood there peering out beyond the cool shadow of his dark blue shoulder into the dazzling road, where— like so many figures thrust forth all unwittingly into the merciless flare of a spotlight, little shabby Eve Edgerton and three sweating horses waited squintingly in the dust. Oh, cried Miss Von Eden. Why? stammered Miss Von Eden. Good gracious! giggled Miss Von Eden. Then, hysterically, with her hand clapped over her mouth, she turned and fled up the stairs to confide the absurd news to her mates. With a face like a graven image, Barton went on down the steps into the road. In one of his thirty-dollar riding boots, a disconcerting two-cent sort of squeak merely intensified his unhappy sensation of being motivated purely mechanically like a doll. Two of the horses that whinnied cordially at his approach were rusty roans. The third was a chunky gray. Already in one of the roans, Eve Edgerton sat, perched with her brittle rein oddly slashed in two, and knotted, each raw end to a stirrup, leaving her hands and arms still perfectly free to hug her mysterious books and papers to her breast. 
"'Good afternoon again, Miss Edgerton,' smiled Barton conscientiously. "'Good afternoon again, Mr. Barton,' echoed Eve Edgerton listlessly. With frank curiosity he nodded toward her armful of papers. "'Surely you're not going to carry all that stuff with you?' he questioned. "'Yes, I am, Mr. Barton,' drawled Eve Edgerton, scarcely above a whisper. Wordly he pointed to her stirrups. "'But, great Scott, Miss Edgerton,' he protested, "'surely you're not reckless enough to ride like that, just guiding with your feet?' "'I always do, Mr. Barton,' sing song to the girl monotonously. "'But the extra horse!' cried Barton. With a sudden little chuckle of relief he pointed to the chunky gray. There was a side saddle on the chunky gray. "'Who's going with us?' Almost insolently, little Eve Edgerton narrowed her sleepy eyes. I always take an extra horse with me, Mr. Barton. Thank you. She yawned with the faintest possible tinge of asperity. Oh, stammered Barton quite helplessly. Oh. Heavily as he spoke, he lifted one foot to his stirrup and swung up into his saddle. Through all his mental misery, through all his physical discomfort, a single lovely thought sustained him. There was only one really good riding road in that vicinity, and it was shady, and thank heaven it was most inordinately short. But Eve Edgerton falsified the thought before he was half through thinking it. She swung her horse round, reared him to almost a perpendicular height, merged herself like so much fluid khaki into his great towering threatening neck reacted almost instantly to her own balance again and went plunging off toward the wild rough untraveled foothills and certain destruction any unbiased onlooker would have been free to affirm snortingly the chunky gray went tearing after her a trifle sulkily barton's roan took up the chase Shade? Oh, ye gods! If Eve Edgerton knew shade when she saw it, she certainly gave no possible sign of such intelligence. Wherever the galloping grass-grown road hesitated, between green-roofed forest and devastated woodlot, she chose the devastated woodlot. Wherever the trotting, treacherous pasture faltered between hobbly rock-strewn glare and soft, lush-carpeted spots of shade, she chose the hobbly rock-strewn glare. On and on and on, till dust turned sweat, and sweat turned dust again. On and on and on. With the riderless gray thudding madly after her, and Barton's sulky roan balking frenziedly at each new swerve and turn. It must have been almost three miles before Barton quite overtook her, then, in the scudding, transitory shadow of a growly thundercloud, she reined in suddenly, waited patiently till Barton's panting horse was nose and nose with hers, and then, pushing her slouch hat back from her low, curl-fringed forehead, jogged listlessly along beside him with her pale, olive face turned inquiringly to his drenched, beet-colored visage. "'What was it that you wanted me to do for you?' "'Mr. Barton?' she asked with a laborious sort of courtesy. "'Are you writing a book of something that you wanted me to help you about? "'Is that it?' 
Is that what father meant? Am I writing a book? gasped Barton. Desperately he began to mop his forehead. Writing a book? Am I writing a book? Heaven forbid! What are you doing? persisted the girl bluntly. What am I doing? repeated Barton. Why, riding with you? Trying to ride with you? he called out grimly as, taking the lead impetuously again, Eve Edgerton's horse shied off at a rabbit and went sidling down a sandbank into a brand new area of rocks and stubble and breast-high blueberry bushes. Barton liked to ride, and he rode fairly well, but he was by no means an equestrian acrobat, and quite apart from the girl's unquestionably disconcerting mannerisms, the foolish, floppity presence of the riderless gray rattled him more than he could possibly account for it. Yet, to save his life, he could not have told which would seem more childish, to turn back in temper, or to follow on in the same. More in helplessness than anything else, he decided to follow on. On and on and on would have described it more adequately. Blacker and blacker, the huddling thundercap spotted across the brilliant sunny sky. Gaspier and gaspier, in each lulling treetop, in each hushing birdsong, in each drooping grass blade, the whole torrid earth seemed to be sucking in its breath, as if it meant never, never to exhale it again. Once more in the midst of a particularly hideous glare, the girl took occasion to rein in and wait for him, turning once more to his flushed, miserable countenance a little face, inordinately pale and serene. "'If you're not writing a book, what would you like to talk about, Mr. Barton?' she asked, conscientiously. "'Would you like to talk about peat bog fossils?' "'What?' gasped Barton. "'Peat bog fossils,' repeated the mild little voice. "'Are you interested in peat bog fossils? "'Or would you rather talk about the Mississippi River pearl fisheries? "'Or do you care more, perhaps, for politics?' Would you like to discuss the relative financial conditions of the South American republics? Before the expression of blank despair in Barton's face, her own face fell a trifle. No, she ventured worriedly. No? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Barton, but you see, you see, I've never been out before with anybody my own age, so I don't know at all what you would be interested in. "'Never been out before with anyone her own age,' gasped Barton to himself. "'Merciful heavens! What was her own age? "'There in her little khaki Norfolk and old slouch hat she looked about fifteen years old. "'And a boy at that. Altogether wretchedly he turned and grinned at her. "'Miss Edgerton,' he said, "'believe me, there's not one thing today under God's heaven that doesn't interest me except the weather.' The weather, mused little Eve Edgerton thoughtfully. Casually as she spoke, she glanced down across the horse's lathered sides and up into Barton's crimson face. The weather! Oh! she hastened anxiously to affirm. Oh, yes, the meteorological conditions certainly are interesting this summer. Do you yourself think it's a shifting of the Gulf Stream? Or just a day 
Just a change in the past with the cyclonic areas of low pressure? She persisted drearily. Eh? gasped Barton. The weather? Heat was what I meant, Miss Edgerton. Just plain heat. Damned heat was what I meant, if I may be so explicit, Miss Edgerton. It is hot, conceded Eve apologetically. In fact, snapped Barton, I think it's the hottest day I ever knew. Really, droned Eve Edgerton. Really, snapped Barton. It must have been almost half an hour before anybody spoke again. Then, pretty hot, isn't it? Barton began all over again. Yes, said Eve Edgerton. In fact, hissed Barton through clenched teeth. In fact, I know it's the hottest day I ever knew. Really, droned Eve Edgerton. Really, choked Barton. Creakily, under their hot, chafing saddles, the sweltering roans lurched off suddenly through a great snarl of bushes into a fern-shaded spring-hole and stood ankle-deep in the boggy grass, guzzling noisily at food and drink, with a chunky gray crowding greedily against first one rider and then the other. Quite against all intention, Barton groaned aloud. His sun-scorched eyes seemed fairly shriveling with the glare. His wilted linen collar slopped like a stale poultice around his tortured neck. In his sticky fingers the bridle rein itched like so much poisoned ribbon. Reaching up one small hand to drag the soft flannel collar of her shirt a little farther down from her slim throat, Eve Edgerton rested her chin on her knuckles, an instant and surveyed him plaintively. Aren't, aren't we having an awful time? she whispered. Even then, if she had looked womanly, girly, even remotely affectedly feminine, Barton would doubtless have floundered heroically through some protesting lie. But to the frank, blunt little boyishness of her, he succumbed suddenly with a beatific grin of relief. Yes, we certainly are he acknowledged ruthlessly. "'And what good is it?' questioned the girl, most unexpectedly. "'Not any good,' grunted Barton. "'To anyone?' persisted the girl. "'Not to anyone,' exploded Barton. With an odd little gasp of joy, the girl reached out dartingly and touched Barton on his sleeve. Her face was suddenly eager, active, transcendently vital. "'Then, oh!' Won't you please, please turn around and go home and leave me alone? She pleaded astonishingly. Turn around and go home, stammered Barton. The touch on his sleeve quickened a little. Oh, yes, please, Mr. Barton, insisted the tremulous voice. You, you mean I'm in your way, stammered Barton. Very gravely, the girl nodded her head. Oh, yes, Mr. Barton, you're terribly in my way, she acknowledged quite frankly. Good heavens, thought Barton, is there a man in this? Is it a tryst? Well, of all things. Jerkily he began to back his horse out of the spring hole, back, back, back through the intricate, overgrown pathway of flapping leaves and sharp, scratchy twigs. I am very sorry, Miss Edgerton, to have forced my presence on you so, he murmured ironically. 
"'Oh, it isn't just you,' said little Eve Edgerton quite frankly. "'It's all father's friends.' Almost threateningly, as she spoke, she jerked up her own horse's drizzling mouth and rode right at Barton, as if to force him back even faster through the great snarl of underbrush. "'I hate clever people,' she asserted passionately. "'I hate them. Hate them. Hate them. I hate all father's clever friends. I hate—' "'But you see, I'm not clever,' grinned Barton in spite of himself. "'Oh, not clever at all,' he reiterated, with some grimness, as an alder branch slapped him stingingly across one eye. "'Indeed,' he dodged and ducked and floundered, still backing, backing, everlastingly backing. "'Indeed, your father has spent quite a lot of his valuable time this afternoon assuring me, and reassuring me that, that I'm altogether a fool.' Unrelentingly, little Eve Edgerton's horse kept right on forcing him back, back, back. "'But if you're not one of father's clever friends, who are you?' she demanded perplexedly. "'And why did you insist so on riding with me this afternoon?' she cried accusingly. "'I didn't exactly insist,' grinned Barton with a flush of guilt. The flush of guilt added to the flush of heat made him look suddenly very confused." Across Eve Edgerton's thin little face, the flash of temper faded instantly into mere sulky ennui again. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear,' she droned. "'You didn't want to marry me, did you?' Just for one mad, panic-stricken second, the whole world seemed to turn black before Barton's eyes. His heart stopped beating. His eardrums cracked. Then suddenly, astonishingly, he found himself grinning into that honest little face and answering comfortably. "'Why, no, Miss Edgerton, I hadn't the slightest idea in the world of wanting to marry you.' "'Thank God for that!' gasped little Eve Edgerton. "'So many of Father's friends do want to marry me,' she confided plaintively, still driving Barton back through that horrid, scratchy thicket. "'I'm so rich, you see,' she confided with equal simplicity, "'and I know so much. There's almost always somebody—' Petrozavodsk, or Broken Hill, or Bashkulombwe, who wants to marry me. In where? stammered Barton. Why, in Russia, said little Eve Edgerton with some surprise. And Australia, and Africa. Were you never there? I've been in Jersey City, babbled Barton with a desperate attempt at facetiousness. I was never there, admitted little Eve Edgerton regretfully. Vehemently, with one hand, she lunged forward and tried with her tiny open palm to push Barton's horse a trifle faster back through the intricate thicket. Then, once in the open again, she drew herself up with an absurd air of dignity and finality and bowed him from her presence. "'Good-bye, Mr. Barton,' she said. "'Good-bye, Mr. Barton.' "'But Miss Edgerton,' stammered Barton perplexedly, Whatever his own personal joy and relief might be, the surrounding country nevertheless was exceedingly wild, and the girl an extravagantly long distance from home. But Miss Edgerton, he began all over again, Good-bye, Mr. Barton, and thank you for going home, she added conscientiously. But what will I tell your father? worried Barton. Oh, hang father, drawled the indifferent little voice. 
But the extra horse, argued Barton with increasing perplexity. The gray! If you've got some date up your sleeve, don't you want me to take the gray home with you and get him out of your way? With sluggish resentment, little Eve Edgerton lifted her eyes to his. What would the gray go home with you for? she asked tersely. Why, how silly! Why, it's my mother's horse. That is, we call it my mother's horse, she hastened to explain. My mother's dead, you know. She's almost always been dead, I mean. So father always makes me buy an extra place for my mother. It's just a trick of ours, a sort of a custom. I play around alone so much, you know, and we live in such wild places. Casually she bent over and pushed the protruding butt of her revolver a trifle farther down into her riding boot. So long, Mr. Barton, she called listlessly over the other, and started on, stumblingly, clatteringly, up the abruptly steep and precipitous mountain trail, a little dust-colored gnome on a dust-colored horse, with a dutiful gray pinking cautiously along behind her. By some odd twist of his bridle rein, the gray's chunky neck arched slightly askew, and he pranced now and then from side to side of the trail as if guided thus by an invisible hand. With an uncanny pucker along his spine as if he found himself suddenly deserting two women instead of one, Barton went fumbling and squinting out through the dusty green shade into the expected glare of the open pasture and discovered to his further disconcerting that there was no glare left. Before his astonished eyes he saw sun-scorched mountaintop, sun-scorched granite, sun-scorched field stubble turned suddenly to shade, no cool, translucent miracle of fluctuant greens, but a horrid, plushy, purple dusk under a horrid, plushy, purple sky, with a rip of lightning along the horizon, a galloping gasp, of furiously oncoming wind, an almost strangling stench of dust-scented rain. But before he could whirl his horse about, the storm broke. Heaven fell. Hell rose. The sides of the earth caved in. Chaos unspeakable tore north, east, south, and west. Snortingly for one single instant, the Rowan's panic-stricken nostrils went blooming up into the cloud burst like two parched scarlet poinsettias then man and beast as one flesh as one mind went bolting back through the rain-drenched wind-ravished thicket to find their mates up 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 everlastingly up the mountain trail twisted and scrambled through the unholy darkness now and again a slippery stone tripped the roan's fumbling feet now and again a swaying branch slapped Barton stingingly across his straining eyes. All around and about them tortured forest trees moaned and writhed in the gale. Through every cavernous vista gray sheets of rain went flapping madly by them. The lightning was incredible, the thunder like the snarl of a glass sky shivering into inestimable fragments. With every gasping breath beginning to rip from his poor lungs like a knifed stitch, the roan still faltered on each new ledge to whinny desperately to his mate. Equally futilely, from time to time, Barton, with his hands cupped to his mouth, hallowed, 
hallowed, hallowed into the thundering, thunderous darkness. Then, at a sharp turn in the trail, magically in a pale transient flicker of light, loomed little Eve Edgerton's boyish figure, drenched to the skin, apparently wind-driven, rain-battered, but with her hands in her pockets, slouch hat rakishly askew, strolling as nonchalantly down that ghastly trail as a child might come strolling down a stained-glassed Persian-carpeted stairway to meet an unexpected guest. In a in vaguely silhouetted greeting for one fleet instant, a little khaki arm lifted itself full length into the air. Then more precipitately than any rational thing could happen, more precipitately than any rational thing could even begin to happen, could even begin to begin to happen, without shock, without noise, without pain, without terror or turmoil, or any time at all to fight or pray, a slice of living flame came scaling through the darkness and cut Barton's consciousness clean in two. End of chapter 1